James chapter 2. I'm going to start at verse 10. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. For if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to those for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Page five. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God? You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then, that a man is justified by works, and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. You may be seated. Alright, so my title today is The Central Text. It's a pun. You're welcome. It's central to the chiasm, and it's central to controversies about the book of James. This chunk of text, James chapter 14, Sorry, James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, is a hotly debated text. It is the key text in the uh, position that is put forward by the papal dominion to try to assert justification by faith and works, and all lesser bodies that seek to take on that same doctrine will appeal to this frequently. This is a shibboleth. This is a test text. How a preacher interprets this text should tell you whether or not he is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ or a servant of Satan. If a preacher tells you that James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, tells you about the nature of saving faith or how to be justified, that man is a heretic. And unless he repents, he will go to hell. It is a false gospel, and let him be anathema. There is no other gospel than that gospel once and for all delivered by the Lord Jesus Christ given to us in the apostolic deposit. There is no room for compromise with making faith something other than the alone instrument and making faith that which is understanding and believing the message revealed from heaven. Now, 
If we look at the outline that I've given to you about the book of James, you can see that we've got this working in towards the middle. There's an issue of trials in the first section. In the second section, B, the lowly are exalted and the exalted are brought low. In C, we have lust and anger versus God's gifts. And these gifts are evidences of the credibility of profession to others. And then we get into 21 and through 27. And I don't know how that typo snuck back in, but it's uh, 21 through 27, not 77. And here we have right and wrong responses to wisdom. A credible profession versus a vain profession. You can hear wisdom. You can hear wisdom. And then give a vain profession. And so there's this way of testing for a vain profession. There's hypocritical partiality that causes division. And then there's also the law of liberty. And we are called to act in such a way that accords with the law of liberty. And so... Acting in accordance with the law of liberty is evidence that we have been made free indeed. And so, the middle section, F, verses 14 to 26. A dead profession of faith versus a living profession of faith. You're used to hearing living faith versus dead faith. I hope today is to make it abundantly clear to you that it is far better to understand this as a profession. So we will be walking through lots of grammatical issues. My intention is to spend two or three weeks on this chapter on this section of this chapter. Um, first, my intention is to walk through it and give you a proper overview of the right way, dealing with some of the principal objections. My intention then is to go through in more detail some of the systematic issues and some of the objections that are brought forward against this view and to attack those. And then my goal will be to help you to come back and see this book, uh, this section of the book, in the context of the wider book and to see how it fits together with the flow and how it makes far more sense out of the book to understand it in this proper Protestant way. Now, let's uh, go down to the text that we're going to be looking at. I want you to jump to uh, page 2. Look at, look at verse 10. Okay, I want you to remember this. James, the same James who writes the next set of verses, wrote these verses. Okay, Verse 10, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. James is laying out the covenant of works there, and he's showing us how to think about works in terms of our standing before God. James does not contradict himself a few verses later. He is not saying, you who are breakers of the law are all condemned under the law, and then a few sentences later saying, the way to get justified is by keeping the law. That is not what he is doing. Now, verse 13 is where we end off, and I want to spend a little bit of time there. It says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Well, there's two things to take away from this. First of all, in terms of before God, the covenant of works, the law of God, requires... Mercy giving under certain circumstances. First, it requires human beings to show mercy to each other when another human being repents. Secondly, it requires true religion, helping orphans and widows, the poor in need, when they are deserving poor. 
We read those things not as absolutes of every poor person, every widow, every orphan. We read that in terms of all of the qualifications that are laid out in other parts of Scripture. There are qualified poor persons, qualified orphans, widows, and poor that are working, and poor that are disabled, who are worthy recipients of charity, and that is mercy ministry. And so we are called to remember that we are to be merciful in terms of the Matthew 18 type of scenario and merciful in terms of mercy ministry that has been talked about by James. And we need to recognize this. Anybody who's admitted to the church is admitted on the basis of mercy. Anybody who is admitted to the church is admitted on the basis of mercy. We are viewed as having a legitimate claim to believing in the message of mercy because of fruits of works. But we, if, you, if a person comes and says, I don't have any sin, then you do not admit them. James and 1 John are both books that are focused upon the doctrine of a credible profession. And they are frequently misinterpreted, not only by Romanists and Eastern Orthodox and every other cult, but frequently now, Protestants, even people calling themselves Reformed Protestants, take these two books and they will either make them about justification before God or they will make them about assurance of salvation, which loses their power and makes them useless. These books are about a credible profession of faith. And I want to show you a key passage from 1 John and help you to see that. So look at 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-10. through 10. This is the message which we have heard. Notice the we. Okay? This is a very corporate set of sentences. This is the message which we have heard from him and declared to you. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, God, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. People will read this, and you'll read commentators, and the existential angst that they have is comical, as though they've never thought about the doctrine of justification before. They're like, well, does this mean that we have to have enough works or good enough works or whatever? We can't have some sin that lasts a long time or something that's an abiding sin in order to be justified? No, you're going to have sin abiding with you until you die. Let's not kid ourselves. Let's not joke around. Let's not play with this. Let's not have self-righteousness of any kind. You will have sin that abides in you until the day you die. This is about external evidence. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, if we say, if we say, if we say, hey, what do you say? Do you say things to yourself? If you do, you're crazy. Right? If you, or who are you talking to other people? Right? If we say, if we say to each other, this is the idea. And you should preach to yourself, right? But if we say, this is about a confession. If we say that we have fellowship with him, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. This is a test to look at other people. If you look at your own profession and you go, well, I, I profess to believe the gospel. I did sin, though. Guess I'm not saved. That's a life of despair. Assurance of salvation does not depend upon you keeping the law. Assurance of salvation does not depend upon you keeping the law. 
If it did, you'd have no assurance of salvation. You are going to break the law of God in part every moment of your wretched, sinful life until the Lord takes you or returns. We will become less and less sinful. We will become more and more alive in righteousness and in the knowledge of truth. But our righteousnesses are polluted with our internal corruption. Verse 7, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Do you see how he's talking about fellowship with each other? This is how you judge whether or not to let somebody into the fellowship. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. And we have a reason to believe that that person is saved. If we say, and this is also how you judge churches, by the way, this is how you judge corporate bodies, and this is how corporate bodies judge you. It's a two-way street. You judge the doctrine, worship, and government of a church, and that's how you determine if a church has a credible profession, and the church judges your doctrine and practice. And that's how they determine if you have a credible profession. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, if we say, if we say, if we say, okay, this is confession, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, at least on that point, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, confess, you confess outwardly, that's the point, right? This is about an outward action of confession. You confess our sins, we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is all corporate. Us, us, us. Lots of plurals. Lots of plurals. This is corporate. This is talking about church life. Verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. All the we's, all the us's. You're welcome for the bold underlines. Hopefully that shows you the overwhelming way in which that text is talking about a corporate existence and not the individual existence. This is not talking about assurance of salvation. It is talking about credible profession. And so an evidentiary base to accept somebody's claim. So the book of James is doing the same thing. The book of James is doing the same thing. So verse 14, I'm going to start breaking down the misinterpretations as we go along. There are a lot of them. This is an overwhelmingly misinterpreted passage. And I'm asking you to search for them and root them out. And I'm asking you, if you disagree, argue with me. Let's fight. If you think I'm wrong about this, you should remove me from office. What does it profit, my brethren... If someone says he has faith, says, says, someone says he has faith, but does not have works, can faith save him? So I want to say there's something here that's very disappointing about the New King James in this section. Over and over again, it first talks about says he has faith, and then every reference that we're going to have to faith going forward in this section 
it's going to have a definitive article. And the New King James doesn't keep it. Which makes it so it's far easier to misunderstand this passage. Every time you see it, I put it in, okay? Every time you see that I've put that there, you're going to see that it's, can that faith save him? You see how much more clear that makes it? He says he has faith. Can that faith save him? It's obviously referring back to the profession of faith and not faith simpliciter, not faith by itself. It's not talking about faith as the instrument of justification. It's talking about a profession of faith. So the first one, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith? We all read that and we go, you know what the goal of life is? To get saved. And so it's not profitable to have a profession of faith or to have faith and not have works because we're not going to get saved. That's how we read it. What if, just pretend for a second, the goal of life is not to get saved? Just what if? What if, in fact, the goal of life is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever? Then, things that are profitable, and if you've read the book of Ecclesiastes, it's all about what's profitable versus what's unprofitable, what's useful versus unuseful, useless, what's vain versus fruitful. This is wisdom literature of the New Testament. So, what does it profit? What's the use if someone says he has faith but does not have works? This is not about justification before God. This is about a useful life and being useful in your confession. So, what's the profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Well, the prophet's negative value, the P&L on that person's confession of faith is zero or negative. That person undermines the profession of the church. That person brings shame to the gospel. That person does not earn rewards for themselves. That person instead is squandering the talents that the Lord Jesus Christ has given to him. So what's the benefit or profit of a profession of faith without works? Negative value. It's none or negative says he has faith. This sets the context for the rest of the chapter to be about a profession, which is verbal assent, not mental assent. Those two terms are very important, and I'm asking you to grab hold of this. Verbal assent is agreeing with the mouth. Mental assent is agreeing with the mind. It is very popular to attack mental assent. That is a way of attacking faith. That is a way of attacking belief. It is a way of saying, thinking the gospel is true is not enough to be justified. That's another gospel. That's a denial of the gospel. Now, a lot of this is just weak language, failure to communicate effectively, and preachers ought to know better. Preachers ought to know better. And my goal as a preacher is to make sure that you know better, so you identify that trick. When somebody says to you, salvation is not by a mere mental assent, Mere means alone, okay? So what they're saying is, salvation is not by mental assent alone. What's mental assent? It's when you think something is true. Not when you just say it. When you think something's true. If you think something's true, do you believe it? Yeah. 
So if you say it's not by mere mental assent, you know what you're saying? It's not by faith alone. Go to Rome. Go kiss the feet of the Pope. Kiss his ring. Worship and prostrate before him. You have no place in a Protestant church. Justification is by faith alone. It is by mere mental assent. It's just thinking that the gospel is true. And if you think that's too little, that's the point. Because it's not meritorious. You're not justified before God on the basis of your faith. You're justified before God on the basis of Christ's perfect obedience. And mental assent, faith, belief, is the alone instrument that connects you to the merits of Jesus Christ. Justification is by mental assent alone. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says, says, says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? It's the the Greek term he, or you'll see ho, those are definitive articles. Definitive articles, it means the or that. And that faith save him. The Greek text is a definitive article before the word faith. Can that faith save him? What faith? Save from what? Save from a useless life. You know, a part of the problem of sin is the guilt. A part of the problem is the indwelling power of sin. And a part of the problem is the vanity of life. A part of the problem is the vanity of life. A part of what the gospel saves us from is a vain or useless life. It saves us from boredom and uselessness. It gives us purpose, meaning, value, a way to see what's good. We have light in the darkness. It saves us from miserable, useless life. That's a part of what it saves us from. And it's glorious. The gospel saves us from the guilt of sin. The gospel saves us from the power of sin. But James is talking about being saved from a useless life, which is a part of that power and enslavement that we have in sin. We're saved from the uselessness, the vanity that comes from enslavement to sin. I want to show you some verses that are commonly misused. The key one is Isaiah 29, 13. You'll have a preacher get up there and he'll say, you know, you're going to miss heaven by 12 inches. The space between your heart and your head. There's the proper preacher quiver. To make sure that it pulls on your heart. In the scriptures, the heart thinks. In the scriptures, the heart plans. In the scripture, the heart purposes. The head and the heart are the same in the scriptures. The spirit, soul, mind, heart, they are the same. It is the inward man. And the scriptures, nowhere, 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 contrast the head and the heart. It doesn't happen. I'll give you $1,000 if you find it for me. I'll pay you in cash within one week. Isaiah 29.13 is a commonly pulled on text. Here's what they say. Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths 
and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. Okay, so the end of it, fantastic regulated principle text. Don't abide by the the commandments of men. Don't give your fear or service or obedience to God based upon the commandments of men. Go to the scriptures alone. But the earlier parts compare the mouth and the lips. Those are compared. They're related. That's the external, the profession. And the heart is contrasted. This is not mental assent versus a true heart belief. This is verbal assent versus mental assent. The mouth versus the inward man. That's the contrast. Let's read it again, and let's think about this. Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths, profession, and honor me with their lips, profession, but have removed their hearts far from me, inward man. It's what you think versus what you say. What you think versus what you say. Talk is cheap. You profess your faith, now demonstrate your faith. That's what... James is saying you want to be admitted you want to be acknowledged you want your confession to be taken as a confession with integrity then provide the fullness of that testimony by giving works with it as a second witness justification is not by faith and works justification is by faith alone Saving faith is frequently said to be more than understanding and believing the gospel, and you will hear these Latin terms thrown out. When you hear Latin, I want an alarm bell to go off in your head. Latin should smell of Rome to you and not of the Reformation. Now, Latin has a use, and I'm not saying Latin's evil by itself. Learning Latin is valuable so you can read the Reformed scholastics, so you can go back and deal with that, so you can read other things. That's useful. That's fine. But we're not exegeting Latin from the Bible. If I want to sound erudite and educated, Latin's a great way to do it. But what does it prove? What you will hear is people will say, the reformed position, the reformed position, is that saving faith is made up of notitia, a census, and fiducia. That's what you hear. Okay? So let's, let's, let's take this in a little bit more. Here's the thing people say is the reformed position. They'll say fides, which is the Latin word for faith. Fides, which is the Latin word for faith, is made up of notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. Hey, if I were telling you in English that I'm going to define the word faith by the word faith, what would you say to me? Do it in Latin, it's a little bit harder to catch. Fides and fiduciary. You know what fiduciaries are? Fiduciaries are people who have a duty of faith. If you have a fiduciary responsibility, you have a duty to believe something? No, a fiduciary responsibility is a responsibility of faithfulness. If you're a fiduciary, you have a duty of faithfulness, which is obedience. So what's the point here? We are either saying faith is faith in Latin, clear things up. Or, what we're doing is we're saying faith is faithfulness. If we're saying faith is faith, I can do that in English just well. And it's a lot easier for people to catch me. If I'm saying faith is faithfulness, it's an easy way to smuggle faithfulness or works into faith. 
I'm not saying everybody who uses the tripartite definition with these terms is a heretic. They are not. You will commonly see R.C. Sproul, for example, using this three-part definition in many of his things about saving faith. And then he will give a very long explanation, and in his longest explanations, he will say he agrees with our position. You will see him specifically reference Gordon Clark and say that he agrees. You will also see him reference Jonathan Edwards, and he will say that Jonathan Edwards defined it the same way that Gordon Clark did. That's what he will do. Okay? I'm not saying that everybody who does this is this way. Robert Godfrey is another man who prefers this, and Robert Godfrey has a right definition of what saving faith is. He defines the fiduciary element as essentially applying it to yourself. He'll include assurance that way. This is the common thing to do. So you do have a lot of reform documents that will say things like you have to understand the gospel, notitia, taking note of the information, understanding. You have to assent to the truth of it generally, and then you have to apply it to yourself. And they'll say that's trust. That's fine if by trust we mean applying it to yourself or thinking that it applies to you or thinking that Jesus paid for your sins. Okay, that's fine, that's fine, that's fine. We were talking about the psychological elements. So I'm going to plead that Clark's formulation is far more clear. Saving faith is understanding the doctrine and thinking the doctrine is true. Those are different psychological activities, understanding and thinking something's true. I can understand Marxism. I think I understand pretty well. I don't believe it. I reject its doctrine. I do not assent to it. I believe it is false. I understand it. Someone can understand the claims of Jesus Christ, understand the gospel. Many of the Pharisees understood the claims that Jesus was making far faster and better than his disciples did. And they were offended by it. They thought it was false. Assenting to the gospel, agreeing with the gospel, thinking it's true, believing it, is all that is necessary as the instrument of justification. If you add fiducia, you're either just adding in the initial term that was trying to be defined, or you're adding something that is included in assent, like assenting to an extra proposition. I have to believe the gospel, and I have to believe it applies to me. That's just thinking an extra thing is true. That's just thinking an extra thing is true. That's, that's an additional truth to believe. It's not a different psychological activity. It's an extra truth to believe. Now, if I want to add in a different psychological activity, do you see how the three-part thing has provided excellent cover for doing that? Because there's understanding, there's thinking it's true, and now there's an extra psychological activity. And if I'm a heretic, I'm going to grab hold of this thing for all it's worth. And so here are common things you will see smuggled into fiducia. If it's trust or assurance, that's fine, as long as those things are not defined in some crazy way. I've heard people say the third element is trust, and by trust I mean obeying the law. And you go, what? Where do we make that jump? How did that happen? So people are really good at putting together chains to confuse to get to heresy. Heretics love to be slippery and avoid being caught, and they like to disguise themselves as angels of light. So you have to figure this out. What do they mean? If they smuggle in faithfulness, love, abiding, perseverance, emotion, works, these are all things that make another gospel. You're not saved by your works. You're not justified by having the appropriate emotional response. You're not 
justified by abiding or persevering in the faith. Persevering in the faith is a promise, not a requirement. Persevering in the faith is a promise. It is not one of the conditions to be met. If you have faith today, you will have it tomorrow. God will uphold you. If you don't have that, you don't have assurance. You can't have assurance. Love is obedience to the law. You remember we just read above, James said, love your neighbor. And then he applied the Ten Commandments, adultery, murder. And he said, this is the law, the royal law, the law of liberty. If you break one part of it, you've broken the whole of it. Sound familiar? That's what love is. Love is obedience to the law. If you make love into the definition of faith, what you're doing is you're turning faith into works. We are not justified by our love. That would be justification by works. Now here's a confusing part here. I have to explain this. You'll read Jonathan Edwards. If you ever read The Religious Affections, he's going to go through and he's going to parse that a little bit more. He's going to say this. He's going to say, in one sense we can say that love is faith because the love of God starts with the first commandment which requires us to know and acknowledge God. And so the first time we've ever known God is that time that he's caused us to understand what's revealed about him and to believe. And so in a certain sense that does fulfill part of the first commandment. But it's not as a work that it bridges. It's part of what the first commandment requires. But it's not by love in the broad sense of all the things that God's law requires that we're justified. It's only in the sense that faith itself is actually commanded. That's why it's so important to remember that faith is an instrument and not a meritorious basis of justification. It's not meritorious because it's not the faith itself that's counted as our righteousness. It's the faith as a connector to the righteousness of Christ. It's not faith as the basis of our righteousness. God doesn't say, ah, there, you kept the condition, and therefore I'm rewarding you on the basis of the condition that you kept. Instead, it's, I have given you faith, and it is the legal instrument that connects you to the conditions being met by Christ. I know this is complex. Why is it more complex? Why are we having to deal with it in a complex way? Well, first of all, God revealed these things. He wanted them to be known. And to understand the covenant of grace is to have a deeper knowledge of what God wanted us to know about him. He's a God of justice who cares about law And he's a God of mercy, who is merciful without being unjust. And understanding the intricacies of this law order of the covenant of grace is the way by which we see the justice and mercy of God as they kiss, not as they fight. There is no contradiction between them. And so, if we consider these things, we go, it's complex also because of heresy, and that's right. Do you know why the Lord plagues his church with heresy? It is because we are too lazy to search out apart from chastisement. And heretics come upon us and bring controversy and trial and difficulty and fights and schisms and renderings. They bring about pain and suffering in the church and strife in our midst because we would not seek out the things of God, but instead we're distracted by the things of this life. And so, these heresies 
are a scalpel in the hand of the surgeon. And they push us to know more deeply the gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in the mediatorial work of Christ alone. And so we can praise God for them. This is what we're told at the beginning of the book of James. And so being pushed to deal with these details is being pushed to the edges, being pushed to know more, being pushed to resolve things that we otherwise would not have thought about. Point nine. That faith is a profession of faith. It's a verbal assent. He says he has faith. What we're seeing here is hypocrisy versus integrity. And a credible profession is a, is a profession that has an evidentiary base for integrity. We talked about being saved from what? Unprofitableness. And I want to remind you, if we try to interpret this in the way that Romanists do, we'll say, can faith save him? As opposed to that you know, confession of faith. Let's go back up and look at verses 18 and 21. Verses 18 and 21. Which I meant to put there, but did not. Verse 18 says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The word of truth brought us forth. It gave birth to us. There. Can, that faith, can faith save? Yeah, faith can save. How about verse 21? Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. How? How does the word save your soul? By believing it. As we're taught so many other places in Scripture. Can faith save? Yes, absolutely. How does James not contradict himself? James does not contradict himself or other parts of Scripture because he's not saying, can faith save? He's saying, can that profession of faith save? That faith is the profession. James is very concerned about the sins of the lips. If you look at the rest of the book, that's going to be an emphasis. We get to James chapter 3. It's going to all be about teachers. Just before this section, it was all about being careful about what you say. This is a thing at the center, the confession of faith, and whether it's credible or not. James is very concerned about the sins of the lips. One thing I also want to point out to avoid being misunderstood, justifying faith necessarily produces good works in the relationship of cause and effect. Works are an effect. They're not a part of it. They're an effect. Good works are produced by faith. You can have faith, saving faith, and die before you do any good works. Elect infants who die in infancy are an example of that. The thief who was on the cross next to Jesus is an example of that. Justifying faith given time necessarily, inexorably, in the relationship of cause and effect produces good works. But good works are not a part of faith. They are fruit and not root. They are not of the nature of it. They are a product of it. Verse 15. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food... And one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? Oh, we just asked what does it profit above. Do you think that these two profit questions are related? So you think that maybe they're not about 
justification before God, but they're about useful life. And so now we have a useful blessing versus a useless blessing. You have a brother or sister, somebody you're covenanted to, and they don't have clothing that's sufficient, and they don't have daily food that's sufficient. And one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled. Right? You're, you're making a profession of love and desire to see blessing. It's an expression of benediction. But I'll tell you what, if I have food and clothing, and I know you need it, and I pronounce blessing on you, and then I don't give it to you, are you going to believe that my blessing on you is something that's credible? Do I actually care? Do I actually desire to see that blessing come to fruition? If I did, I would give you the clothing and the food. Work or lack thereof to give the needful things shows whether the profession of the desire for blessing is credible. This shows the difference between hypocrisy and integrity. Verse 18, what does that kind of profession of blessing give? What does it profit? It's not credible, and it brings shame on the one who professes. It destroys the corporate functional union of the church by making the communion of the saints of no effect. And that profession of blessing brings shame on the gospel and on the one that professes the gospel. That's what use it is. Its P&L statement is negative. It's a negative usefulness. It shows shame. Now, the question is not what profit is it to God. Okay, God doesn't need to gain anything. The only thing God gains in the whole created order is making something that shows off more what he already has eternally and infinitely. Now, verse 17. Thus also, that faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So if you just read this the way it is in the New King James, it says, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The word that, the, the definitive article is there as well. Okay? So we're referring back up to, he says he has faith. And this makes sense. This is the line of argument. He's arguing the same thing. He's not changing subjects on us from profession to faith. He's talking about a profession the whole time. Thus also, that faith, the profession, by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Thus. The word thus shows it's an argument. We can't be switching subjects. We can't be switching subjects. If you switch the subject, that's the fallacy of equivocation. The argument doesn't work. You can't go from a profession of faith to faith and have the argument follow. That would be equivocation. That's like saying, because tables have this quality, therefore water has this quality. What? You're going from one subject to another subject. You can't get in a conclusion what wasn't there in the premises. James is not smuggling in a new term in the conclusion. Thus, also, that faith, the profession, by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. This shows the connection. The word thus shows the connection to a profession. And then the word that also further helps to show it. The profession is a dead profession unless it's joined by works. This is not about the nature of saving faith. This is about the nature of a credible profession of faith. If a preacher takes this and says, this shows you the nature of saving faith, guess what they've done? They've smuggled works into the definition of faith. 
they've said a saving faith is a faith that includes works. And if there aren't works, it's not faith. That's the only way to take that argument. So if it's talking about faith, and it's saying that the faith is a dead faith if it doesn't have works, then the idea there is that you're saying that works themselves are the thing that change it from having a nature of a saving faith or a not saving faith. Verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Now, I want to point this out. The quotation marks are not in the Greek text. The quotation marks are an interpretive effort. So, I think the New King James, again, has done a bad job here with the quotation marks. What's happening here is you have this quote coming in. It's a hypothetical person. And this person, the question is, is this person a supporter of James's message or is this person an objector to James's message? It's commonly read as an objector. If you read it as an objector, here's how you have to read this text. You have to say, someone will say you have faith and I have works. And then you have this be a response. Okay, this is somehow now a response to that objector. Show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. This is, just, this is out of the blue. It doesn't make any sense as an objection. And the response doesn't make any sense as a response to that objection. You have James is saying, hey guys, you have to have a profession of faith joined with works. And then all of a sudden somebody says, you have faith or you have a profession of faith? And I have works and my, I guess my, my, my profession doesn't matter, so let me into the church because I'm a swell Buddhist? Like, that argument is not doesn't fit in here. It doesn't make any sense. That's not what's being said. What's being said is, you have a profession, I have works. You show me your faith without your works, not possible. I'll show you my faith by my works. In other words, the credibility of my profession is made full by doing works that act in accordance with the law of liberty. Not doing good works that people think are good. The law of liberty. I don't keep the commandments of men. I keep the commandments of God, even when men don't think they should be. I keep the commandments of God. And that's a basis for you to believe that my profession is credible. And when I break the law of God, which I will, which I do, I will confess that before God and man. And I will ask for mercy, which makes my profession more credible. If you just make a profession, don't confess sin, and don't seek to apply the law, not credible. You make profession. When you sin, you admit it. But you're never really doing anything. Guess what? We still have to, when you make those commitments, accept them. When you confess, seven times 77. Not a lot of positive evidence, but the confession of the sin itself is a work of going through conflict resolution. And so we have to deal with you as a brother without a lot of positive fruit. But just, you keep admitting. You keep admitting that you failed. People are tired of that when they're not believers, and they leave. Now, 
Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. I put the quote right there. It ends there. That's the end of the quote. When he says, but someone will say, this is a a strong contrast. It's a strong disjunctive. It's the word Allah, which the other word that's translated but is day in Greek. Okay? And day can be used weekly. It can be used in a, to mean a contrast. It can also just be used as a conjunction. Okay? Allah is always a disjunctive. It's always but in the strongest sense. Okay, so the contrast here, it has to be an objector. What's the person objecting to? The person is objecting to the claim that James himself is arguing against. Somebody who claims to have faith but no works. Their profession is useless and their profession is not credible. And so this is a supporting objection. It's an objection to what he's, what James himself is arguing against. Page six. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Heretics love this text. And here's what they will say. Even the demons believe and tremble. Therefore, belief is not enough. Even the demons believe the gospel. These are super orthodox demons, by the way. Like, whenever anybody's using this phrase, they're, they're always taking this verse, and they're like, even the demons believe in superlapsarian postmillennialism. Right? Even the <laughs> demons believe in the limited atonement of Christ. Even the demons believe in all of the right doctrine laid out in the Westminster Confession of Faith from top to bottom, the larger catechism, shorter catechism, very orthodox demons, very orthodox demons. That is not what the text is saying. The point is that even the demons claim to believe. Okay? But also, what is it that's said to be believed? You believe that God is one. That's monotheism. Here's how people try to make that into you believe the entire Orthodox faith. They try to connect it to the Shema. And so here's the things that have to be done to make this verse into you believe the gospel and believing the gospel is not enough to be saved. What they do is they say it's a belief and not a profession of belief. It's a belief in the gospel and not monotheism. And this argument totally makes sense even though demons aren't justified by faith alone. I think I have demonstrated to you that we are clearly talking about a profession of faith. That is the context. I think that the words, there is one God, to take this and interpret the doctrine of justification as a governing text, even if, we, even if I admit that it's the Shema, it's still quite the jump to say we can demonstrate that this is belief, and it's belief in the whole gospel, And then the conclusion doesn't make any sense. Even the demons believe and tremble. There is no mediator between God and demons. No one has paid for their sins. Justification for demons is by perfect obedience to the law. They are condemned from their first sin and they have no salvation. If this is an argument about the justification of human beings before the Lord God Almighty then James made a logical error. And that is not possible. 
Therefore, this cannot be what the text is teaching. James is not arguing justification for human beings is by faith in works for the forgiveness of sins. Demons have a forgiveness of sins. And demons have faith but not works. Therefore, they're not saved. And therefore, we're not saved if we just have faith. That's the argument that Romanists and other heretics want you to take from this text. It doesn't follow because we're not saved by the same law structure that righteous angels are justified by. They're justified by the covenant of works. They're justified by perfect obedience under the covenant of works. We are justified in the covenant of grace by faith apart from the works of the law. Are you starting to see how many awful sermons you have heard about this text? And they're all from Protestant pastors, aren't they? Judge what I'm saying. This is recorded. Judge this and see if what I am saying is consistent with the gospel delivered to the saints or whether what you have heard elsewhere is more accurate. Do not judge me by counting noses. Do not judge them by counting noses. Judge them by the scriptures. What does the scripture say? And if this is teaching that faith is insufficient as the instrument of justification, let's be honest. James contradicts Paul. And if that's the case, why are we wasting our time here? Eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow you die. If the scriptures contradict themselves, they are false. They are not false. They are the word of truth, and they cannot be broken. Justification is by faith alone. Now, the demons profess belief in the true God and they tremble. They're terrified. They do not believe the doctrine of justification by faith alone. They don't believe the gospel. They don't believe that it's good. They don't believe that it is a good thing that God has saved his elect. Satan's rebellion is about his hatred of the fact that he would be ruled by men by God's decree and law. Rather, than him making the rules. He wants to be God. And so he throws off the law of God and rebels. And he hates the idea of men judging him. He hates it. Verse 20. But do you want to know, foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Now, in the Greek here, it has two word that. <laughs> but do you want to know, foolish man, that that faith, that that faith, that's what it's actually saying. It's hoti followed by a definite article. So it's purposive that followed by definite article that. Do you want to know that that faith without works is dead? It's a profession. That's the context. That's what that faith is. It's a reference back. We're following a chain of reasoning. We don't change the subject all of a sudden. It's the same subject all the way through or it's invalid reasoning. It's the same subject all the way through or it's invalid reasoning. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see? Do you see? Do you see? Do you see? That faith was working together with his works. And by works, faith was made perfect, complete. His profession was made complete. You add works to your profession and it's a complete profession. You add works to your profession, and it's a complete profession. 
It's a double witness testimony. And the scripture was fulfilled which said, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That's from Genesis 15, 6. Romans 4, 3, and Galatians 3, 6, Paul interprets these. We will do that next week. You go look at those texts. Paul is not using these in the same way. Either they contradict themselves, or they're talking about justification in a different sense. The scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then, you see, you see, then, that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. 24 is not saying, this therefore demonstrates that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. What it's saying is, what it's saying is, you become evidentially aware that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And the other thing is, and we'll go about this in more detail next time as well, the word only looks like in the English it's attached to the word faith. If it were attached to the word faith, the Greek word would be mones, okay? It is not that word. It is a different form of the word alone. It's an adjectival form. It's not an, it's an adverbial form, not an adjectival form. It's not attaching to a noun as an adjective. It's attaching to a verb as an adverb, okay? And as an adverb, it's saying, you see that he's not justified only by faith, which is talking about different kinds of justification. There's multiple justifications, is what the text is saying. And that other justification is justification before men as an evidentiary thing. So we'll talk about that next time as well. Verse 25, likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works before men? when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so that faith without works is dead also. And so here's, here's the analogy there. If faith without works is evidencing itself to be a faith in something... Sorry. Body is to spirit as profession is to works. The body is the thing that's filled or made complete. And the spirit is the thing that fills. A profession is the thing that's either empty or filled. And it is filled by works. It is made meaningful or full or complete by works. A profession is not credible without works. I've given to you as a doctrinal section, a doctrine of justification. This is forensic justification. When we talk about demonstrating our faith to other people to be credible, that's called demonstrative justification, and we'll talk about that next time. But forensic justification is explained for us in our confessional standard in chapter 11 of justification, the Westminster Confession of Faith. This chapter is excellent. Chapter 1 and chapter 11 were the chapters that the Westminster Assembly spent the most debate time on because they were so concerned to have chapter 1 and chapter 11 be excellently worded. The doctrine of authority and the doctrine of the gospel. The gem, the centerpiece, the diamond of the gospel, the doctrine of justification. Those are laid out there, and um, we'll be continuing in this. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights.